whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no hollow, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink, thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hello, Dan. I'm Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay. Hello, sir. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone for the recent ratings and reviews. In addition to sharing this podcast with friends, family, coworkers, uh, you know, whoever you think would like it. Uh, leaving ratings and reviews is the best way to help us find new listeners and always appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you. And also a bunch of new exciting merch is going to be coming soon, including a really cool uh, new collection to badmagicmerch.com and actually badmagicproductions.com is up now. Yes, it is. Our new website is up. Yep. So you can go there and that'll link you right to the store and it'll be on the homepage. There'll be, you know, uh, a little store section Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the Valentine's Day cards. Uh, they're really they're really popular this last year, like thick cardstock. Yeah, they're so cute. Cool, uh, very cool illustrations are back in, so you can send those to your creep and peeper lovers. You can buy them for your kids, let them hand them out at school. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. They are appropriate, actually. I think they were like pretty charming. Yep, yep. yep you can put like a little, you know, candy on the back, and yeah. I remember one year for Valentine's Day because it was like you got to bring in treats to school. Yeah, there was this like thing that my mom made where it was. Uh, either juicy fruit or fruit stripe gum, which fruit stripe gum is going away and I'm devastated. Uh-huh. Um, you made like a little airplane that was like the wing and then you got these little mini rolls of lifesavers and you use like a rubber band. And of course, like my mom being like freaking Martha Stewart, she like, it was the the lifesavers and the gum and something else, maybe like Smarties. And you, it looked like a little airplane with like a rubber band. I mean, Sounds it was familiar. adorable. Yeah. And my mom made, you know, 45 of them. Like no big Cute. deal as she's raising two kids and working a thousand mm-hmm. jobs. Yep. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> uh, what fan true horror do you have for us as we approach Valentine's Day? Oh, yes. Are you going to do anything for Valentine's Day? We never really are big Valentine's people. We're not. I don't <laughs> care about it. Um, okay. My first story, I am like, wow, 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 whoopsie. Uh, a strange encounter with maybe a shadow person and the tale comes from a police officer. And it. I mentioned the police officer thing because it has to do... The, the story has to do with their profession. Okay. So it's like so, so weird. Um, really into it. And then my second story, we have some kind of like unidentified encounter with an unidentified creature down in the swamps of Florida. Going out hunting some wild boar and a strange thing happened to a couple of friends. I feel like we've been to a fair amount of swamps recently. And I, I like it. I do it's a good not. spooky setting. I know, and I feel like my phone is listening because like an article just came up about like swamps. an alligator and a snake ah. in a swamp uh-huh. and how they ate each other and exploded was the headline. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> I didn't read it. Uh, I'm very excited to share a poltergeist double feature for my two stories today. Whoop, whoop. Uh, for my first poltergeist story, we're going to head to Birmingham, England. Fall of 2021, Christine Evans claimed her family was brutally tormented by an intense amount of very disturbing paranormal activity. So many claims. Uh, this story reads like a like a portion of a horror film screenplay. Okay. And the second story, full of roughly the same amount of activity, activity to allegedly have occurred in Fermanagh or Fermanagh County, Ireland, over a century earlier. It's the story of the Cooning Poltergeist. 
Sounds great. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't happen to me. So yeah. awesome. Uh, once you've got your horror uniform on, oh. I will. Uh, I will begin. My horror form. Your horror form. Look at look at these. They're not so hoary. Look at these little cutie pies. Get a doggy. No contextual setup or lore to lay out on this first story. Uh, there's there's an especially creepy recurring element to the story too. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to jump right in. Okay, let's do it. Let's go. Time now for the tale of Leave This House or You Will Die. In late September of 2021, Christine Evans was enjoying a day out walking around and shopping along Erdington High Street in England's Birmingham city center. It would be one of the last good days she would enjoy for quite some time. She eventually wandered into the British Heart Foundation, a popular local charity shop. Once inside, her eyes quickly settled on a small, beautiful wooden photo frame. Something about it just drew her to it. She will soon come to believe that the frame chose her more than the other way around. Seeing that the price was only five pounds, it was a no-brainer to purchase it, and soon she was leaving the shop with the frame in hand. She was so happy. Money was tight at the time, and she rarely bought anything for herself that was not an absolute necessity. When Christine got home, pleased with her new little purchase, she took it out of the bag she'd carried it home in, took out the white placeholder card filling the frame, and was about to grab a new photograph to replace it, but then to her surprise, behind the white card, there was a photograph. An old photograph of an angry-looking man. Something about the picture terrified her, and she quickly threw it in the trash bin and placed the empty frame down on a table. Distracted and a bit upset, she momentarily lost interest in her new purchase. The next morning, while her daughters got ready for school, Christine nearly screamed out loud when she saw the horrible picture frame of the man now back inside the frame. Oh, no. Or horrible, yeah, picture. Uh, when When her heart stopped racing, she tried to convince herself that there must be a reasonable explanation. Her eldest daughter was a bit of a prankster, probably just playing a joke on her. Once again, she removed the photograph from the frame, threw it back in the trash bin, and she assumed that would be the end of it. But that evening, when Christine and her daughters returned home for the day, there it was again. Now Christine began to get upset. This was no prank. No one had been home while they had been out of the house. Determined to stop this from ever happening again, she took the photograph, threw it away in the outside trash bin, and she placed a full bag of rubbish on top of it. She had no idea that not only were things not over between her and the strange photo, but things had only just begun when it came to a wave of poltergeist activity about to wash over her and her family. The next morning, when Christine went downstairs, she was greeted by something out of a horror movie. The front door, wide open, the unsettling photograph she had now thrown away three times was back in its frame, and a trail of garbage led from the photo frame through the open door and outside to the trash bin. Oh, shit. This was too much to keep to herself. She ran to wake up her husband, John. After checking and not finding any signs of forced entry, John decided to burn the picture so that there would be zero chance it could ever show up again. Okay, that's the right choice. Mm-hmm. He put the photograph in a bucket, took the bucket out into the back garden, and set the cursed photo on fire. He watched it burn down to ashes. And if, while he did that, he still doubted what his wife had said had been happening, he would no longer doubt it the following day, the very next morning. The infernal photo, impossibly, back inside the frame, with absolutely no sign of it ever having been burned back inside the house on the table. Get rid of that thing. Now the paranormal activity John and Christine had experienced would begin to escalate. Soon, they and their children would have to contend with something more than just an unsettling, magically reappearing, impossible-to-destroy photo. Other strange occurrences began to plague the family. Loud bangs were heard later that same day from all around the house, emanating from both everywhere and nowhere. 
And then that evening, from one particular wall in their youngest daughter Emily's bedroom, scratching noises could be heard that would continue all throughout the night. Christine was terrified. She knew in her gut that this was only the beginning and she didn't know how to keep her family safe. She was too scared to reach out to any family or friends, worried that they would only think she was crazy. But she was also too scared not to reach out to someone. After doing some digging around on the internet, she found contact information for a local British paranormal investigator, Lee Brickley, and she reached out to him, outlining her family's recent paranormal encounters. Lee responded almost immediately. He agreed to visit the family at 6 p.m. that same day, the same day that Christine reached out. As he pulled up to the house, Christine was running out of the house, running towards him in a panic, yelling, Thank God you're here! It's happening now! Lee followed her hurriedly into the kitchen, and as soon as he walked through the door, a bread knife seemed to appear in the air out of nowhere, flew towards his head, narrowly missing him before crashing against the wall and then falling to the ground. See ya! On high alert now, the entity certainly had his attention. Lee walked around the house, looking around for more signs of activity, but that would be all he would get for the moment. Christine made coffee, and then the adults went into the living room where the children were. Maggie was 12 years old and Emily was four. Lee asked if he could question the children, with their parents present, of course, and John and Christine gave him permission. Maggie now went on to confirm what Christine had claimed, that she'd been hearing loud bangs coming from all over the house, that she'd watched things move despite no one touching them like the bread knife, and that she was so scared of the photograph that her parents had been unable to destroy that she couldn't bring herself to even look at it. Emily would then do more than confirm what others had seen. She would reveal that she'd witnessed something new and more frightening than what had already been revealed. When Lee asked her about the photograph, she simply said, Oh, that's my friend's daddy. He's mean, though. Her parents were horrified. When asked which friend, she explained that she'd met him a couple of days ago, a little boy, and that he now lived in the house with them. This was the first her parents had heard of this, and intense feelings of worry now radiated out from poor Christine. John decided the girls had had enough for one night and took them upstairs to get ready for bed. A couple of minutes later, he came racing back down the stairs, face as white as a sheet, and he explained how he had been in the bathroom with Emily, helping to brush her teeth, when he saw a dark human-like figure slide across the hallway past the open door. Lee now ran upstairs with John, not wanting to miss the opportunity of seeing an actual apparition. When he got to the doorway of Emily's room, the door swung and slammed hard in his face. He was able to quickly pull it back open, but when he entered the room, whatever may have been still inside didn't want to be seen. Emily was now more than a little anxious, thanks to all this activity, and it was decided she would stay in her sister's room that night. John had to leave for work. He worked a graveyard shift. Before he left, he agreed to allow Lee to stay over uh, the night to possibly document more activity and to help Christine and the girls feel safe. Lee would document a lot of activity. That night was full of loud bangs and the sounds of scratching coming from inside the walls. After a few hours of hearing sporadic and strange sounds, Lee had an idea. He took the photograph, seemingly connected to all the activity out of the frame, and turned it around, inserting it back in backwards. Then he took the frame outside, locked the frame and photo in his car for the night. And it worked. The activity in the house stopped. All of it. But his car alarm would go off just before dawn. When Lee went outside to attend to the alarm, he found his car in a strange state. All the doors were still locked. It was obvious no one attempted to break into it. But the glove box was open, his gas cap had been opened, and the mysterious picture frame was nowhere to be found. Oh, shit. Walking back into the house, he found Christine up and making coffee, and sitting on the dining room table was the picture frame, oh, with the old photo of the man now properly displayed again. What was it with... What was... Uh, what was it with this photo? 
Soon, thanks to the noise of the car alarm and Christine and Lee talking, the two girls were up and both came downstairs. Maggie volunteered that she kept waking during the night and was now feeling a bit dizzy. After grabbing a quick bite, she returned to her room to try and fall back asleep. Emily, on the other hand, was feeling great. She said that she was happy because the little boy had come to visit her in the middle of the night. Christine and Lee exchanged worried glances. Who was this little boy and how was he connected to the photo? The rest of that day went by pretty uneventfully, at least until around 5 p.m. At that time, Emily rushed downstairs and exclaimed, The little boy is here. She then ran back upstairs with Lee and Christine following her. Lee was disappointed to find her bedroom looking devoid of any entities, but Emily explained that the boy was near them. He just liked to play hide-and-seek. They needed to find him. Lee was skeptical, thinking all of the paranormal talk over the past few days had gotten the little girl's imagination going. He looked around her room for a bit, saw nothing, and then took a seat on the little girl's bed while she continued with her search. Looking over to where Christine stood in the doorway, Lee was shocked when he saw clear as day the face of a little boy peeking out from behind Christine's legs. He was not something imagined by a little girl. He was very real. Lee jumped to his feet as he tried to tell Christine what he was seeing, but before he could get the words out, the boy was gone. Just as the boy disappeared, strange noises emanated from the next room where Maggie lay in bed, where she still wasn't feeling well. Rushing into the room, Christine and Lee will claim that they found the girl gasping and struggling for breath. A fluffy cloth belt from a bathrobe had been turned into a ligature and was used to strangle her. Christine leapt across the room, grabbed the belt, fought with some invisible force for a moment before her daughter was released. It was now decided that the family would take some pillows and duvets and all sleep together downstairs and that Lee would stay another night. The next morning, the family were once again awoken by the loud beeping of Lee's car alarm. Confused, he had not moved the photograph this time, he ran outside. Mud had been smeared across his windshield, a lot of it. And in the mud, someone or something had written him a message. Leave this house. Returning inside, he heard Christine screaming from upstairs. The madness was constant. When he made it up to the second floor, he found her sitting in the doorway of Maggie's room with her hands around her own throat. Oh. She seemed to snap out of some trance when he made it to her. And now he saw written over and over on the walls around Christine the same words from his windshield. Leave this house. Christine claimed to have blacked out, said the writing had not been there a few moments earlier. Lee and John, who, who, uh, who was downstairs when Christine blacked out, but was now upstairs with his wife and Lee, now walked back downstairs and told the girls that under no circumstances was anyone to go into Maggie's room. The frightened 12-year-old was still looking rather worse for wear and had developed a fever. As the day went on, she felt worse and worse until she could barely move. Her mother tried to take her temperature down with a bag of frozen peas as she and John wondered if they should take her to the hospital. Meanwhile, Lee went into the kitchen and the frame and photo were now missing. He'd been considering taking the photo out into the woods in another attempt to destroy it, and he wondered if whatever was attached to the photo or the frame or both had sensed what he was planning and was hiding from him now. He, Christine, and John all searched for the frame, and soon after being unable to find it, they realized the girls had now disappeared. Frantically running upstairs, they found them both in Maggie's room. Emily was sitting cross-legged by the door, counting up as if playing hide-and-seek. Maggie was also sitting cross-legged with her eyes closed across the room, and it appeared as if she was levitating a little bit above the floor. John ran towards his oldest daughter, and as he did, her bed quickly slid out away from the wall and blocked his path. Then, in the blink of an eye, Maggie somehow disappeared again. What? Tearing the room apart, they found her a few moments later, hidden inside the wardrobe, slumped forward, unresponsive, as if in a deep sleep. So strange. 
John grabbed his oldest daughter, Christine grabbed the youngest, and everyone returned to the living room. Lee now accepted this was out of his depth and decided he needed to call in a friend, an ex-priest by the name of Mark Wells. Mark was more than happy to assist, even claimed he had had a dream about Lee needing his assistance the previous night. He could be there within just a few hours. While the family waited for Mark to arrive and assess the situation, Christine kept hold of Maggie. The little girl seemed to be delirious. Sounded like she was trying to speak, but the words made no sense. Just in case it was something more sinister than a fever, Lee recorded her, then messed around with some settings on his laptop. What he discovered chilled him. The child was not muttering nonsense. She was just talking very, very quickly. And she was saying over and over again, leave this house or you will die. Leave this house or you will die. Leave this house or you will die. It was now decided that Emily, the youngest daughter, should stay with her grandmother. Things were feeling more and more dangerous. John left for about an hour to take her there. Mark arrived right around the time he got back, and as soon as he walked into the Evans' home, everyone present heard loud, heavy banging start up in the attic. When asked, Lee was rather embarrassed to say he had not thought of checking the attic before, now realizing that was clearly where the banging was coming from. Mark and Lee left the Evans' family in the living room while they went up to investigate. The attic was dark and cluttered full of the usual things you'd expect. Old toys, boxes of clothes, holiday decorations, etc. Also, in the middle of the room, something somewhat literally jumped out at both Mark and Lee. A wooden box. A wooden box that was moving. It seemed to contain whatever had been making the banging noises. Cautiously, Lee slowly opened the box. Inside was a single item. The cursed frame complete with the old photo of the angry man. Oh my God. Mark took one look at the picture and asked, you know what that is, don't you? When Lee shook his head, Mark exclaimed rather excitedly, it's a mugshot. On their way back down from the attic, Mark, clearly not a traditional former man of the cloth, said he had a Ouija board in his car. Oh. And he asked Lee if he thought the Evans family would agree to hold a seance. He believed that communicating with the man in the picture was key to ending the family's torment. Mark made a call to a friend in the police to ask if he could look into the mugshot while Lee ran the seance idea past the Evans. They agreed. They would have probably agreed to almost anything at this point. They were desperate to rid their house of continuous and escalating poltergeist activity. Soon, Mark and Lee were lighting some candles and placing the Ouija board in the middle of the living room. Mark said a prayer, performed a blessing, and they began the seance. Is anyone here? Lee asked, staring at the planchette. Then everyone present got their answer. But it did not come from the board. It came directly from Maggie. I'm here, she said in a voice that was not her own. Why are you here? She brought me here. Why won't you leave this family alone? I'm not leaving without my boy. The voice emanating from Maggie bellowed. The planchette now began to move, spelling out, leave this house, before flying off the board and hitting the wall. Then, incredibly, while everyone was distracted by the planchette and the flying Ouija board, Maggie vanished. Frantically, Mark, Lee, and her parents ran around the house looking for her but could find her nowhere. Panicking, about to call the police, they then heard her voice cry out for help. Her voice seemed to come from inside the pantry in the kitchen, but upon opening the door, she was not inside. Oh my God, is she in the walls? She called out again, and now Lee realized the sound of her voice was coming from beneath the pantry. John ran to grab his toolkit, made quick work of cutting and smashing through the pantry floor. Underneath, there was a red brick staircase <gasps> leading to a basement the family never knew existed underneath the house they were renting. Holy shit. Sure enough, down in the middle of a dark, damp, cobweb-infested room and possibly was Maggie. 
After making sure she was okay, Lee logged into his Facebook account on his phone. He'd posted the photograph of the man from the frame on there, and now there was a message from someone claiming they knew who he was. Apparently, the man was Isaac Ellery. Long, long ago, in 1853, he had been sent from the UK to a prisoner camp in Australia after he'd strangled his son to death. Feeling confident that it was a malevolent spirit they were dealing with and not a demon, Mark felt comfortable performing a cleansing ritual. They sat Maggie, who was feeling worse than ever, on a chair in the living room and made sure Christine and John sat with her. Mark began to walk around to every corner of the house with Sage, praying, demanding the spirit leave the family alone. It seemed to go well until he reached the attic, the final room. The air there felt heavy and cold. A shadow darted across the walls and Mark felt as if he was not only being watched, but threatened. Meanwhile, downstairs, the chair Maggie was sitting on began to shake violently, and the little girl completely lost consciousness by the time the ritual was over. When it was over, the energy in the home felt good, great even, light, just like it had before Christine brought the photo and frame home. Mark felt confident that the home had been cleansed of the angry spirit. Christine and John rushed Maggie to the nearest hospital, where she would stay and recover from exhaustion for a full four days. After that, her health would return to normal, and the family would never again experience any additional paranormal activity of any kind in their home. Their haunting was over, but I have one more strange detail from this story to share. Somehow, during that final cleansing, the frame and photo disappeared for good. Mark, Lee, and the Evans family would now be left to wonder where they had gone. Was the frame now sitting on the shelf of another shop, waiting to be invited into another home? Oh my god. That's wild. Yeah. And it does sound like a movie. Uh-huh. I just want to say right off the rip that yeah. I didn't scream any GTFOs because, <laughs> because in the very beginning, it was made evidently clear that money was tight. Oh, so, yeah. So I don't want to shame them. Okay, good job. You know, good job. I know. Well, like, <laughs> I mean, I wanted them to get out, but yeah. like also, where are you going to go? Mm-hmm. Times are tough. I only have one photo okay. that I believe is associated with this story. Uh, I feel like it has to be. This seems to be that old mugshot of Isaac Ellery. This does come from 1853. This man was sent to a penal colony in Australia from the UK. So, I mean, what are the odds there would be two guys with that name sent that same year? I mean, feels improbable. Imagine that photo just continually reappearing in your home. That is like a very, very strange phenomenon. Uh-huh. The fact that Maggie, when she started disappearing, I wanted to be like, get the fuck out of here. This I know, is not I know. happening. You're like, uh-huh. people don't just vanish. They don't just like get yeah. teleported to other places. But I mean, I wasn't there. I know. I know. There's some definitely like um, more extreme activity and a little, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, over the top. Yeah. If it happened like that, holy shit. Yeah. I mean, that's like some Conjuring Universe stuff. That is. That's what I kept thinking of during that story. Really awful stuff. I was singing songs in my head. I just want to let you know. So the two songs that just would not leave my head uh-huh. was, uh, I think it's a Nickelback song. Look at this photograph. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> right? Funny. Yeah. I, just, I couldn't get it out of my Look head. Look at this photograph. Every time I do it makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, how did her eyes, how, was that, how did her eyes get so red or something? Oh my uh, God. Yeah. The video uh, always gets like because it, it was like way too on the nose. Yeah, because yeah, he yeah. Says, Look at this photo, and he like literally holds up a picture of a photograph. <laughs> okay, we got it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And then when you said Maggie, I like Rod Stewart started playing in my head. Oh yeah, Maggie. Oh, I was dying. Um, well, really interesting story. I mean, I mean it moves. that would be. I mean, it's constant action. Yeah, I did like that. It was you know pretty quick mm-hmm. and not super dragged out. And- yeah, I feel like after we had like a slow burner last week, which I did really like. It's what funny, was I, last I was week? talking to Tyler about it after the recording. It was, um, oh my gosh, it was uh, Las Vegas, the Luxor. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. You a little yeah. girl. It was just like a gripping story. The triangle. Mm-hmm. The triangle but, story? But there wasn't a ton of like um, activity. Right. You know, uh, which I like, you know, the slow burn sometimes. I like for variety, this one, just like constant stuff happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it was really fascinating. And it would be, I mean, you would just be at a complete loss as to yeah. like, what is happening? How is this happening? Uh-huh. The photograph being set on fire, burned, destroyed, and then- yeah reappearing the next day as if nothing had happened. Yeah. How did it get it in that box? Like weird about the, um, when Lee put it in his car uh-huh. and then the next day with like the gas cap off uh-huh. and the glove compartment open and then the mud. I mean, everything about it is just like, this is too much. I know. I know. And then for it to just be gone mm-hmm. with no, yeah. left without a trace. Yeah. Ugh. What if one day uh-huh. one of them is like in another thrift store and they see it? Oh my oh, God. God, that would suck. I would just walk out immediately. Would you feel morally obligated to tell the shopkeeper? Ooh. Yes. Or like, ah, but or, I wouldn't want to like, it's almost like I wouldn't- like a crazy I, person? I wouldn't want to alert that thing to my presence. Oh, like if it is specifically interested in you as opposed to- You know what I want to do? I'd want to destroy it inside the shop. Don't take it anywhere. Don't buy oh. it. Maybe like try and sneak it into the bathroom or something and smash it into pieces, flush the little pieces down the toilet, something. That'd be interesting. Um, maybe if I saw it, I would consider calling some, like, I don't know, maybe I would call Lee Brickley again, or maybe I'd find somebody else and explain like, hey, this is what happened to my family. Yeah. The frame and the photograph went just missing, just yeah. literally poof. But now I've found it. It has the picture of, um, what's his name? Isaac, whatever in it. And Isaac Ellery. And I need you, you know, paranormal person to come to this shop. I don't know, like bag it and tag it, you know, (laughs) lock it up like, like Annabelle's locked up or something. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like you'd have to. I know. I feel like that like little photo and frame should be in the, uh, the Warren's occult museum, which I don't even know if they're really keeping up anymore. Last time I checked, it wasn't open. Hadn't been open for a little while. I think COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But still, well, you could call Zach Bagans and he could put it in his museum. Oh yeah. Put it in his Vegas museum. I mean, I I would think that you would, I mean, it's in the UK, but like you'd have to find someone. Mm -hmm. I, I would feel morally obligated to find someone who was not me. To dispose of it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't want any part of it. Ichi, wow, wow. Are you ready to head from England to Ireland and explore another poltergeist case? And I, and I like this one just as much. Yes. Before we move on to more scares, time for a quick in-between story sponsor break. Thanks for listening to our sponsor deals, Creeps and Peepers. Not much setup on this one either. A little bit though. Just a few paragraphs of uh, some exposition before I lay out the claims of paranormal activity. Nice word. <laughs> I don't know if I even used it correctly, though. You did. But thank you. Okay. Uh, in the middle of the forest, in the heart of Cooneen, Ireland, stands an abandoned stone cottage. Still in relatively fair condition, considering a century of neglect, the cottage looks like the prime location for filming a horror movie. Dark and lonely, surrounded by overgrown shrubs, grasses, and a few trees. It would be easy to imagine a crazed killer hiding out here, mm. waiting for some unsuspecting future victim or victims to enter. And it seems something is hiding out in this abandoned cottage. While it is no crazed killer, it does seem to be some sort of villain. The cottage is believed by many to be the home of some sort of ghost or demon, a poltergeist that once so terrorized former occupants, a widow and her family, so badly, they fled across the ocean to a new continent to try and escape their torment. Damn. Time now for the tale of the Kunin poltergeist. Bridget and Michael Murphy had eight children together. Oh. 
Two boys, James and Michael Jr., and six girls, Annie, Mary, Teresa, Bridget, Catherine, and Jane Ann. This already sounds like a horror tale. (laughs) In 1907, Bridget Murphy received terrible news that her husband Michael had been killed in a freak accident, leaving her widowed and alone to raise these eight children. Bridget was devastated and heartbroken, but she was also an incredibly strong woman. Her husband and her had managed to save about 127 pounds before he died, not much now, but a fair sum at the time, and she used that money to continue living life as best she could. Most women at that time who were widowed so young would try to quickly find another husband in order to have a father figure for the children and a source of income, but Bridget never considered this. She had truly, truly loved Michael, and she chose to remain alone with his children rather than romantically entertain the advances of another man. I support this. (laughs) Not long after Michael's death, Bridget Murphy and her children moved into the small small stone doomed cottage in Fermanagh County. The house had originally been built by and belonged to the Burnside family, who sold it to the Corrigan family, who then sold it to the Sherry family. And the Sherry family, as far as we know now, were the first to ever experience any paranormal activity there. They were so terrified that they left after staying just a single night. They told no one what had happened, not initially, and sold the house to Bridget Murphy six months later, setting her up for years of suffering. Bridget and her children would live peacefully in their cottage in the woods for the first several years there. Whatever entity they were unknowingly cohabitating with remained dormant and peaceful, or at least it stayed quiet. But then, five years after Michael Murphy's death in 1912, for reasons unknown, inexplicable things began to happen around the house. Annie and Bridget... Not the mother, but Bridget the child, were the first to notice anything strange. Late one evening, they heard loud tapping and footsteps coming from just outside the cottage, shortly before hearing the younger girls began screaming in fear. Initially, they thought it was just one of their neighbors playing a joke on them. James, the eldest child, was out away from the house that night. When he came home the next day, he helped his mother and sisters search the property for any clues as to what could have made the noises they'd heard, and they found nothing. Just a few nights later, as the family sat down to have dinner together, Bridget, the mother now, heard a knock on the door. The family was not expecting any visitors and almost never had anyone stop by unannounced. Confused, Bridget got up from her seat to answer the door. Three loud knocks. As she did, the knocking came again, louder, their uninvited visitors seemingly growing impatient. When Bridget opened the door, as I imagine most listening to the story will suspect, there was no one outside. Hello? She shouted out into the forest, stepping outside as she did so. She received no answer. She, now with her oldest sons accompanying her, walked around her home, scanning the woods around it for signs of anyone. They didn't see anyone and also could not find signs of anyone having just been there, like footsteps in the mud. Irritated, maybe a bit nervous as well, uh, or shoe prints in the mud, I guess rather, Bridget and her children returned inside the cottage and finished their dinner. A few hours later, it happened again. Once more, it sounded exactly like someone knocking at the front door. But again, when they went outside to have a look around, there was no one to be found, no signs of anyone having been around. Shortly after this incident, a knocking was heard a third time this same day, but now it was coming from a window upstairs. A window much too high for any person to access without a ladder. Bridget and her children also heard footsteps coming from the hay room above the house later that night. And the window knocking would continue. This knocking was loud enough to keep Bridget awake throughout the night. She laid in her bed thinking to herself in the dark that perhaps they were being visited by a spirit. By the morning, she had convinced herself that they were being visited, but that they had nothing to be afraid of. Rather, they should rejoice. 
Bridget believed that they were hearing none other than the ghost of her husband watching over his wife and children. This thought warmed her heart, and she carried out her morning chores now with a cheery disposition. Following sending her children off to school and to work that morning, while dusting in the sitting room, she heard more knocking. Only this time, there was a rhythmic melody to it, like someone knocking out a tune. It was a song she was familiar with, but she couldn't name it. But she did recognize it as something she'd heard as a child. Still thinking it was associated with her deceased husband's spirit, she found it comforting and carried on with her cleaning. The musical knocking would soon become a regular occurrence, and Bridget would eventually identify the song she was hearing, the soldier's song, and the boy in water. After a few weeks of this, Bridget's cleaning and enjoyment of listening to one of these familiar melodies was interrupted when a huge crash sent the only fine china she owned, a family heirloom, crashing to the floor and shattering into pieces. Bridget stood in the middle of the room, astounded, fearful, saddened, and for the first time she wondered, was this her husband's spirit or something else? Later that day, long after Bridget cleaned up the mess, just after she had fed her children and gotten the littlest ones ready for bed, she was just about to sit down and finally rest a little when she heard her girls screaming. She raced up the stairs to check on them and found all six of her girls huddled onto one bed, shouting and screaming that there was something or someone in the bedroom with them. Bridget frantically looked around with the help of her two sons, but could find no one and nothing out of place. Despite not discovering some intruder, the girls were still terrified and their fear would increase throughout the night, as the entire family was kept awake by loud bangs, screeches, and whistles, most of the noise originating from beneath one of the girls' beds. Bridget's spirits sank. No part of her believed any longer that her husband had returned to them after death. Whatever was tormenting them, it had nothing to do with Michael. After enduring near-constant disturbances for a few weeks, Bridget was now reaching her breaking point. She was sleep-deprived, scared, and finally she made the decision to venture into the church in town to ask for help. This was not easy. Bridget was never one to ask for help easily, and ever since her husband had died, she had all but given up on her faith. She hadn't attended a Sunday service in years. This priest, uh, The priest was, thankfully, very sensitive to Bridget's predicament and agreed to come back to the house with her and take a look around. Immediately following his arrival, it was clear that whatever spirit was tormenting Bridget and her children did not appreciate the priest's presence. The activity instantly became more violent, with crashes and bangings starting the very moment he walked through the door. After listening to Bridget's story, the priest asked to enter the girl's bedroom. The sounds everyone was hearing seemed to still be coming from underneath Annie's bed. The priest said a prayer, attempted to perform a blessing on the house to remove the entity, to which the spirit made it clear this was not going to happen easily. The sounds from beneath Annie's bed continued louder now. The priest promised Bridget he would arrange an exorcism as quickly as possible and return to perform the ritual as soon as he was authorized to do so. But this would sadly never happen, at least not with this priest. In the days that followed, the poor priest, a man who had been perfectly healthy before visiting Bridget's house, became very, very ill. Just a few days after visiting Bridget, he died from the rapid onset of spinal meningitis. The priest's death sent shockwaves of fear through Bridget and her children. Would one of them be next? Would all of them be next? How powerful and terrible was this entity that continued to torment them? Bridget, what else was she to do, returned to the church and soon was discussing the events of this story thus far with another priest, Father Eugene Coyle. Father Coyle insisted that he did not fear this entity and despite what had happened to the priest before him, he could still, would still, do everything he could to help. He arranged to visit the family, picking up where the previous priest left off in terms of getting permission to perform an official exorcism. 
While he waited for that authorization, he also wanted to visit Bridget's house and gather more evidence of the Murphy home being haunted by something malevolent and possibly, if not probably, demonic. Father Peter Smith accompanied Father Coyle when he first visited the house to observe the spiritual activity. They will both bear witness to a tremendous amount of paranormal activity. Father Smith will claim he felt snakes moving under the bedsheets when he sat down on one of the beds. He also reported hearing the sound of something spitting and hissing coming from a corner of one of the rooms. Both priests noticed that the activity seemed to center around Annie. With the priests observing, Annie lay down on her bed and when she did, the activity immediately grew worse. Dark, strange shapes appeared on the walls and something could be seen moving around writhing beneath the covers. Father Coyle would write in his notes about all of this. I stood in the children's bedroom and watched bedclothes on an empty bed rise and fall as if someone was lying there. I felt a cold, evil presence. Then pots and pans suddenly flew off the dresser onto the floor. On another occasion, Father Smith and I were standing side by side downstairs when we heard a crash coming from the story above. I can't really describe what happened next. It felt as if a terrific blast of cold air rushed between us. We both felt it. It was very strange because it didn't disturb our clothing. We saw the ghost grab cups and saucers off the dresser and smash them on the floor. It snatched the bedclothes off the sleeping children and flung them across the room. At times, the bed lifted several inches off the ground before falling back down again while mysterious shapes appeared and disappeared on the walls. The priest noted that the entity or entities also made noises which appeared to come from far below the ground. Following witness, witnessing all this activity, the priest returned to town to attend to their duties. While they were gone, the Murphys received another visitor, another witness to the paranormal torment. A neighbor came to visit the family, and while they were there, they heard a strange noise coming from underneath Annie's bed. It sounded like something scraping against the floor. Then all of a sudden, the covers rose up in front of them, briefly revealing the shape of some strange and terrible beast before settling back flat on the bed. Oh. Soon after this, Father Coyle would return. The priest now stayed with the family for a few days and was amazed to see and was amazed by the continual activity he witnessed in the house. Pots and pans would fly through the air on their own. Knocks, bangs, screeches, and wails were heard nearly constantly. A few times, Father Coyle reported seeing unnatural shadows move across and even through walls. The priest himself soon became terrified, afraid for the well-being of the Murphy family and himself. At one point, he even called for the local MP to come and bear witness to the activity. The two men would perform tests where they would hold the children's hands and arms down in order to, in order to prove they were not the source of any knocking. Local MP Chair Healy, quote, expressed his utter astonishment at the activity in the house. Eventually, thankfully, the exorcism was authorized and quickly scheduled. The family gathered in the girl's bedroom and sat in a circle with Father Coyle, who held in his hands his Bible and some holy water. When the priest started to read verses, the knock started up again and soon turned into the loudest bangs and crashes heard thus far. The girls clung to one another. The boys tried to keep brave faces but were clearly terrified, and Bridget herself held her head down in fear, praying continually under her breath. Objects began to fly around the room, and the family were hit with various kitchen items and decor. Their skin would be covered in small cuts and bruises by the end of the ritual. Father Coyle began to sweat profusely as he continued with his exorcism ritual, looking very much like a man truly battling dark forces and losing. His voice began to falter as he tried to continue with his prayers. The spirit or spirits he fought with could be heard screeching and screaming. The windows all flew open at one point and powerful gusts of wind were sent swirling throughout the house. Eventually, Father Coyle could no longer carry on and nearly collapsed in exhaustion before fleeing from the house. 
he will suffer a complete nervous breakdown and never return. Yet another priest was now called in to again attempt an exorcism. This priest would also be defeated and sent fleeing from the house. Allegedly, by the time he left, part of his face had become paralyzed as if he'd suffered a stroke and it would remain this way forever. The church would now not send another priest. It is believed that the Cooning House is the only house in Ireland where multiple exorcisms have ever been performed, multiple failed exorcisms. And what was behind the demonic infestation of the Murphy home? A rumor spread that the eldest son, James, prior to all the trouble, had found a book titled The Dark Legion and had been practicing dark magic and summoning demons in the house. Who knows if that's true? Whatever the real cause of their troubles, following two failed exorcisms, the family were ostracized. Well, I guess, sorry, three failed exorcisms. I think I've lost count now. Uh, The family were ostracized and feared by their neighbors. The church would wash their hands of the Murphys and Bridget would take whatever money she had left and she'd move her family to the United States. According to multiple sources familiar with this case, while Bridget thought crossing the Atlantic would bring an end to her troubles, she was wrong. Ooh. The knocking and banging allegedly became so bad in the family's cabin on the ship they would cross the sea with that the captain would threaten to throw them off the boat. The entity is said to have followed the Murphys all the way to their new home in the U.S., continuing to terrorize the family and deprive them of sleep. They reportedly had to move a full five times before they finally found peace. The spirit, or whatever it was, tormented the family for roughly five years. Damn. Until 1915. Then, somehow, the spirits believed to have reappeared back in its original location, back to torment whoever chose to now visit the abandoned cottage in the woods. This cottage has remained abandoned ever since the Murphys left and is rumored to be as haunted as ever. In the 1990s, the Cooning Community Development Association considered turning the house into a tourist attraction, but a priest warned them about the possible consequences of disturbing whatever lay inside. In 2016, the small forest surrounding the cottage was cleared, making it more visible from the road. The Forestry Service expressed interest in having someone come in and convert the cottage into a tourist attraction, but due to public backlash, that has still not been done. The County Antrim Paranormal Research Association visited the property for an investigation in early 2016. Capra's team played the soldier song on a penny whistle and noticed massive spikes on an EMF device. They also heard disturbing whistling sounds coming from outside the cottage and a series of strange knocking sounds originating from inside the cottage. A variety of paranormal investigators have visited the abandoned cottage over the decades, and most of them have claimed to experience some type of paranormal activity. What still haunts the Murphys' old home? And will it ever follow anyone else who chooses to visit and terrorize them wherever they go, like what allegedly allegedly once happened to the Murphy clan over a century now? Over a century ago now. That gives me such chills thinking like, just you can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. You can GTFO as much as you want, but you can't, right. you can't escape it. Yeah, yeah. That is such a, a crazy kind of thing to think about because we think like, mm-hmm. okay, well, if you just leave this space, you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. But uh, nah. This is a pretty known uh, story to it. Like when I was looking, I hadn't heard of it before. When I was looking up some pronunciation stuff, just to make sure I was saying Kunin right. Yeah. Uh, there are uh, a bunch of people have, you know, told this story over I think it's like a fairly known uh you know poltergeist story over in Ireland. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you Pretty know what happened one. to me the first the the first time I went to Ireland? What? I was just telling Kyler the story because he's talking about visiting Ireland with yeah. some friends. I was like, oh well first night there mm-hmm. I got so outrageously oh, hammered. wasted yeah. on Magners, which is like a cider. Uh-huh. And then puked my brains out. I mean like slept on the bathroom floor for several hours before I crawled to my bed drunk yeah like, yeah ugh. 
<laughs> but then after that, I loved Ireland. And yeah. It was you, fine. You probably had a great time before you threw up. I, I was having a great time. <laughs> uh, a few photos. This first, a uh, recent black and white photo of the haunted house. You can see all the tree oh, stumps okay. around. okay. I was thinking it was going to be so much smaller than that. Okay. Yeah, you can see like where they've cleared the trees in this photo. And, and I, I mean, I like to try and imagine what it looked like when there were trees all around it. And it's very isolated. Yeah. Like there's no other houses around it. Uh, how terrified you would be feeling so like no one could hear your screams. Right. No one could hear what you were going through. Yeah, you'd feel so alone. Mm -hmm. uh, here's another exterior, exterior photo where it looks like some kind of iron gate has been uh, placed across the front door to keep out trespassers. Mm -hmm. And the windows are boarded up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then just one more, where just to help imagine how creepy this place would appear at night. Um, you can't completely tell from this photo, but I found some other photos that were a bit blurry, uh, too blurry to display here. But there doesn't seem to be another house around for hundreds and hundreds of yards, if not miles. Damn. Yeah, I don't like the idea of being out in the middle of nowhere, just in general. Uh, yeah. Let me rephrase that. Being out in the middle of nowhere without a neighbor, mm -hmm. like for miles. I know sometimes I like the thought of it. Yeah. But then if, uh, you know, if nothing's going wrong, it's great. Mm -hmm. But but if like, you know, if somebody approached your house to burglarize it or whatever, uh. you know, no one would be around to see them. No one would be around to help you. I guess you would hear them coming though. Like Hopefully. it'd be quite difficult in my opinion to sneak up on a. I mean, if they went on foot. I know. Dark, I just, I, that's why I started to hesitate. But if you had motion detector, but I, but I just think about that crazy stuff, you know, like, like motion detectors now, but like back then. Right. Back then. And even now, let's say, okay, let's say you did see them, but you saw them as they're armed and approaching your house. Yeah, it's too late now. What are you going to do? And, unless, you know, that you're armed and hopefully well, a better shot than they are or something. We've been watching some shows with like yeah. interesting kind of scenarios that are playing out in my brain night right now. Like that show we just watched mm -hmm. about the end, the Julia Roberts thing. Uh, murder at the end of the world. No, no, that's, that's the one we're watching Roberts. right now. What's the? Oh, it was a movie uh, uh, on Netflix. Marsha Halla, uh, Ali, and Kevin Bacon. I can't remember something about the world. Logan, ending. Do you remember? The world is ending, or the world is ending. Yeah, do you remember Tyler? What it was called? I can't remember either. But yeah, yeah. but yeah, you, you, you but, keep I've talking about. It. I'll look it up. But you know, in that situation, I was like, after I watched that, I'm like, I want a bunker, and I want like this bunker because the. There's a, a terrorist attack on the United States and it's, you know, in New York and these, yeah. what's it called? Leave the world behind. Leave the world behind. And they have this this one house. Oh my God. It is the most incredible bunker. Yeah. I've never even seen You in a wanted movie. a bunker after seeing that. You're like, okay, yeah, I would just, love one of those. I just said that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. like, that is perfect. I will live down there happily. Uh -huh. uh, but these houses are like upstate New York and just middle of nowhere and you don't have neighbors on top of you. But they are just down the road. So if you need something, you feel some false sense of security. Yeah, I don't know if that place was even like real, but it was cool, like in the movie at least, where they could look across the bay from these properties and see the city. Yeah. like And, and see it like fairly close, uh -huh. but also be in like a rural area. But I'm like, yeah. oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I was into that. And then what we're watching now, Murder at the End of the World, makes me think about being in the middle of nowhere because it's mm -hmm. this isolated building in the middle of Iceland, just yeah. like nowhere, middle of nowhere. That is scary. Yeah. Like that, that kind of terrain, mm -hmm. what could go wrong? You freeze to death out there. Mm -hmm. So dark. Very unforgiving. Yeah. That is a, a good, good word. Uh, yeah. Okay. What did it, oh yeah. It, it is interesting that it took the poltergeist so long to show up. We don't generally oh, yeah, see years. that, you know, it took, it took a long time to show up and then 
lasted for a long time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the rhythm of those things, I mean, uh, there's so much variation mm-hmm. where, you know, I, I think most of the time things start to happen pretty quickly when somebody moves into a new place. But Seems yeah, like it. Mm-hmm. But then like, there, yeah, there's other examples like this one of, you know, uh, they could be there for years, nothing's wrong. But then once things start, it, it tends to follow a similar pattern of like, it escalates. Yeah. You know, I mean, I guess, you know, there's other examples too of it kind of stays steady, but for the most part, once people acknowledge it, once they start to get afraid, once they start bringing people in to check it out, maybe try to help them, it gets worse and worse and worse before it gets better. Do you think it's possible that the reason they didn't notice it was that they were just in mourning for their dad? Like maybe they were just totally, maybe things were happening, but they were... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Was a bunch of kids in the place, which is so common in poltergeist mm-hmm. stories. I mean, both of these ones today, off the top of my head, I actually can't think of any big poltergeist story where a teen child is not involved. True. And it's like, there's so much speculation, as we've said here before, about it's something to do with the energy they're emitting, mm-hmm. you know, energy we don't really understand that how we like, uh, how our bodies interact with the world around us. I was reading some article um, recently. God, I wish I could remember. I just skimmed it. But it was talking about how like we do truly kind of almost like emit like a frequency. Yes, we do. And, th- and then that frequency interacts with things around us, like things that we're not actually touching, but there's some kind of energy exchange. Mm-hmm. And as they find out more about that, it's like, I bet they will eventually connect that to poltergeist activity. Ah, maybe we'll get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. I felt bad for the kids because it's like, how many times are kids afraid of the monster under the bed? And this, whichever daughter it was, a poor thing, like literally- under her bed. Uh-huh. That is... Like the worst place as a kid. Uh, where you're like worried about something being... Under the bed or in uh-huh. the closet. Those are yep. the two number one, yep. like, mommy, daddy, there's, uh-huh. a, there's a monster under my bed. And in this situation, there was. The, the under the bed thing will still get me sometimes. Yeah? Like, like at hotels, like the way our bed's set up, oh, yeah. there is no space under our bed. Yes, there is. You can't access it. There's not like a gap. Yes, there is. I oh, have there is? stuff under our bed right now. New fear unlocked. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm like, I uh, have several oh, like- uh, I forgot that, I guess. I mean, our our bed does sit low. It's a low frame. For some frame. reason, I thought it just went straight down to the floor, but I guess there is a little space underneath. Yeah, I mean, because the dogs, think about like when a dog underneath Oh yeah, ball I just forgot about it. There. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I just yeah. forgot. It's like a little gap. Because um, I was thinking that even if there wasn't that gap- um, In our old bed at the Saltaire apartment, you couldn't. Yeah, you couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. But I was thinking about how like when my foot dangles off, if I'm a little bit feeling spooked, mm-hmm. I just don't like it. You know, cause my that brain goes to that. Feeling. Something's, something's going to grab it. Something's going <sighs> to grab me from underneath. I know. I don't like my foot dangling uh, off the side either. Yeah. I also had never heard of the um, the the stroke in the face. The, the, the priest, his face looked like it drooped, uh-huh. like he had a stroke. Like uh-huh. I've never heard of that as a result of paranormal activity. Yeah, I mean- That, that yeah, I was really was, fascinating. I, I, I struggled for a second with two or three. There wasn't, there was two exorcisms, two failed exorcisms, but, but the previous, there priests. was three priests, like yeah. the one died. Mm-hmm. Then the next one, uh, nervous breakdown. Yes. Then the third, uh, some kind of face para- facial paralysis. Yeah, and the first one that died, he intended for there to be an exorcism. Uh-huh. So I, you know, I think that's yeah, maybe where you got, meningitis, yeah. got caught up i wondered with the spirit following them to the states like can a spirit get lost in that way like was it just kind of turned around and they threw off its you know internal <laughs> know. uh directional guide and so that's a funny thought of like just like quickly packing up and leaving like while the spirit like is not around for some reason or like maybe there's a couple hours during the day when it's like asleep essentially uh-huh and you just like if you can just bolt and get out of there quick enough it just wouldn't know where to find you yeah 
But then yeah. this one, like, this one did go with them. But then uh-huh. when they get to the States, he's like, I don't, this well, doesn't yeah. feel familiar. How he, do I get out of here? He followed them from a, yeah, for, for a few houses, what, like five places. Yeah. And then supposedly just showed back up at the original spot. Yeah. And it, I, I can't believe that they haven't been able to figure out some suspected source of it. Like, who, like, was it from one of these other families that owned right. the cottage before? Well, there's that rumor about the one kid, I think James. Yeah. That, that, but that, even that, that feels a little. Uh-huh. Just town gossip or something. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. it, that seems like an easy target. Yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, it, not to say it couldn't be true, but yeah. Well, those were fun. We haven't had a poltergeist in a while. I yeah, I was excited like. to have uh, some uh, more like classic kind of more traditional stories this week. Well done, Dan Cummins. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Are you ready for my two stories? Yeah. All right. Well, let's just let's just go for it. Okay. All right. Hey, Dan. Hey, Lindsay. I love hearing stories from people who are passionate about all things horror, as I am, and I've been meaning to send you my story for a while now. I was a police officer for just about seven years, and people generally understand the things that we see could be considered horrifying, but are easily explained. For instance, terrible vehicle accidents, domestic abuse, murders, suicide, medical issues. The list goes on. But what I think goes unnoticed are the things we can't explain, things that range from incredibly odd to possibly paranormal. Part of the city I worked in was built around a lake and was overwhelmingly residential, but there were also large stretches of undeveloped land where the forest still reigned. I worked night shift, and in this part of town, things typically slowed down after midnight. I would fill the time in between calls with simply driving around, being visible, and exploring while keeping an eye out for people who were up to no good. At my department, we worked 12-hour shifts, and I lived at least an hour away from work. Add in gym time, and I fully recognized I wasn't getting enough sleep. So it wasn't uncommon to start feeling pretty drowsy at about 2 a.m. One night, I was driving around a less populated part of town and felt that familiar nod start to kick in. I stopped at a stop sign and tried to clear my head for a moment. As I sat there, I saw a flash of movement to my left just outside my door. What the hell was that? I thought. I turned my car around and turned on my spotlight, but saw nothing. I knew I was tired, but whatever it was certainly seemed real. A few weeks later, I was in the same general area, driving with my windows down. I was making a right-hand turn down a residential street when I heard grass brushing to my left. Once again, just a shadow that whipped past and I could not locate it again. These occurrences continued every few weeks for the better part of a year. Flashes of muse flashes of movement, rushing sounds, but then nothing. Then one night, I went to a family disturbance in that same area of town and was inside of the house for about an hour. When everything there was handled, I came back outside to my patrol car. Now, I had made a habit of not unlocking the door until I had tried the handle to see if it was locked. So when the door actually opened, I paused for a minute. I was generally really good about keeping my vehicle locked up. I quietly called myself a dumbass and then got into the car. I took a quick look around to make sure nothing was missing and that nobody was in the car and then started driving. As I made my first turn, I saw a bit of motion in my rearview mirror. I glanced up, but didn't see anything, so I put my eyes back on the road. I chalked it up to being a shadow of a streetlight moving across the seat. As I came to a stop sign, I saw a bit of movement again in my back seat. When I was fully stopped, I looked in the mirror and damn near jumped out of my skin. In the back of my squad car was a person, or rather, a person's shadow 
There was no feature to describe just fuzzy darkness that sat in the same spot that I had transported many a criminals in. Still, I knew that officers had been ambushed by someone in the back of their car, so I jumped out and drew my weapon. I aimed it through the window, turned on the light, my heart racing. Nothing. No person, and now, no shadow. Just an empty, plastic seat. I opened the door to check the floorboard. Still nothing. I closed the door and stood for a moment before getting back in the driver's seat. I looked in the mirror again and saw nothing, so I started to drive away. I almost had myself convinced I was, in fact, suffering from lack of sleep until I checked my left mirror. On the side of the road, under a street lamp next to where I had stopped, was a shadow standing completely on its own. I continued to check on it as I drove away, and it just stood there. Not too long after this, I transferred to another department. I did not see any more shadows at my new department, but when training new officers, I made sure to tell them to watch out for the shadows, and I left it at that. <laughs> that that whole thing, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. The whole thing of an entity suddenly appearing in the back seat, like, you know, forget squad car, just any vehicle. Oh my God. When you're driving by yourself, oh. I mean, I mean, it'd still be bad if you were driving with somebody else in the front seat, but especially like, it's a dark night. You're driving down the road. You look in your rearview mirror, which, you know, we all do all the time. Yeah. And there was just something sitting back there. Ugh. Oh, my gosh. It'd be worse. I mean, he was able to stop pretty quickly. I think he was already stopped because he was able to pop out, yeah. you know, like that. And, like, and he has a gun. Uh-huh. So there's like, a, you know, yeah. safety feeling in that. I think about like, uh, well, like on, a, you know, I-90 around here, maybe going over towards Montana, where it's like a windy road. You're going 70 miles an hour. And so, like, you can't just freak out without risking the possibility of like crashing and killing yourself. Yeah. It takes a little bit to stop the car. There's not necessarily a good spot to pull over. Correct. Ugh, it's so dark and you're alone. Oh my gosh, it's terrible. I Driving at night in general, it just has a uh -huh. creepy, you know, kind of yeah. ambiance to it. And then, yeah, you're right. You were constantly like, you know, you're just driving. So you're checking uh -huh. your rear view mirror naturally. And then, yeah, if you see something, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been driving down, you know, driving 90 from Spokane to Coeur d'Alene. Yeah. And I just glance back and what he was talking about, like the street light kind of flashing across the back uh -huh, seat, uh -huh. catching something and you're like, <gasps> and they're like, oh my God, I'm fine. There's nothing. Yeah. You know, I have given myself near heart attacks. Yeah. So to, for it to go this far. And like he says, like as someone who has seen a lot yeah, and can generally explain it and is used to seeing some horrible things like this really, really got him. And then the fact that, okay, so what really killed me? So I'm thinking like if I was driving along and I thought I saw something in the back and then maybe did or didn't, I don't know, questionable, but then you look out and under a street light, you just see this shadow outline and it just like this shadow of a person under a lamppost. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's horrible. Fuck that. <laughs> I, oh, I would be so messed up. I think I wouldn't be going out at night. Mm -hmm. That that, that uh, visual has showed up in a fair amount of stories too, where it's like quiet neighborhood. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I think about some like, like black eyed children stories, which you haven't had in a while. Yeah. Where, like, you know, people are out. There was one, I think where some teens snuck out at night and they're like walk, walking around the neighborhood, just being like, you know, yeah. 13, 14 year olds. Sure. Uh, happy to be, have snuck out of their house. Yeah. This sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. And then there was just something like out there on a quiet street, just standing on the corner. Yeah. But, like that vision, that visual of something under the, the loan street lamp mm -hmm. Ugh. we had a story a long time ago on the fan side of a young woman she still lived with her parents and she what i remember from it is like she pulled into the driveway yeah and 
maybe sometimes she got to park in the garage, maybe sometimes she didn't, but like this time she had to park in the driveway and she looked in her, like she was about to get out of the car and like looked and saw a shadow figure underneath a, a street light yeah. and had to book it from her car into the house and then got into the house and then there was like banging at the door, I think. Oh Ugh. God. Just like, I hate having to park in the driveway and run into the house. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or yeah. like at a hotel where you have to yeah. like park and then book it inside uh-huh, or like any of those uh-huh. kind of scenarios. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. You ready for one more? Yeah. And back to the swamps? Yeah. All right. Hey, Dan. Hey, Lindsay. Longtime listener since Hear This and a bad magician mm-hmm. since episode one of Scared to Death in the Vietnam Time Suck. Wow. Thanks. Yeah. My name is Corey and I have a true tale straight out of the muggy swamps of Florida where my friends and I used to hunt for hogs at my friend Jeff's cabin in a beautiful yet creepy Cedar Key in West Central Florida. Cedar Key and the surrounding wilderness has a long history of Native American, Spanish, and English settlement, including burial mounds, battlegrounds, old sediments, and then the tragic eradication of said natives, mysterious deaths, and a series of lynchings in the early 1900s. You might say it has both a beautiful yet ominous feel while wandering through the soggy wetland forests especially at night. Jeff's family's property spans multiple acres in this old native land and multiple paranormal experiences have been experienced by multiple people over the years, so much so that Jeff's dad became a paranormal investigator and even considered writing a book cataloging cataloging the shared experiences many of us have witnessed. Back in December of 2013, a group of my friends and I decided to make a hunting trip out of one of the rare, chilly weekends we were experiencing. Every time we would make a trip, we would travel late at night to Jeff's family hunting cabin, usually arriving around midnight to attempt a late stalk to the cabin in hopes of catching said hogs by surprise. (laughs) We made it to the dirt road that led to the cabin with my friends Jeff, John, and his girlfriend Alex, and we hopped out and began to silently load up our rifles and shotguns to prepare for the short hike to the house. As I loaded up my shotgun, I turned on the tactical light to take a quick quick scan of our pitch black surroundings. As I did, I noticed something reflecting off in the distance of the road. I turned to Jeff and asked him if he or his dad had installed any small reflectors on the road, which was fairly common as there are retention ditches to help with the flooding that happened in the wetland forests. Jeff told me that no one had been up there in months, to which I responded, Okay, then there's something watching us up the road. Jeff, excited in hopes that it could be a hog, frightened deer, or the occasional curious coyote, grabbed his hunting rifle, which was equipped with a scope and laser designator. As he put the rifle and scope to his face, Alex and John came around to the side of the truck to see what the commotion was all about. Jeff's face immediately goes from an excited smirk to a look of both confusion and a slight amount of fear. He says, I don't know what the fuck I'm looking at. Excited to know what it was, I eagerly asked to see the rifle to look for myself as all of our interests were piqued along with some apprehension. And what we saw still gives me chills. Squatting about 40 yards from the truck behind a small cypress tree was some kind of furry, almost feather-like gray creature. It was skinny, very skinny, with massive bulbous head eyes, no nose that we could make out, a very small mouth, and skinny spindly arms. It couldn't have been more than two or three feet tall. As I saw it, it was clutching the tree in a hunched over, almost squatting position, but the scariest thing about it was its almost obsessive bobbing of its giant head. 
Imagine a weird combination of Night at the Roxbury <laughs> and a sassy, <laughs> and a sassy, oh no, you didn't, head bob. The best way I can easily describe this is to imagine your stereotypical gray alien, except it's covered in feathers or a thick, fuzzy fur. From left to right, it kept bobbing its head while staring right at us. I audibly gasped and said, dude, what the fuck is that? My other friend John and the girlfriend Alex both grabbed the gun and looked through the lens. John, a good old boy redneck Mm. who immediately would shit talk any paranormal suspicions, didn't believe in ghosts or anything of that sort, and said, even I have nothing to explain that. Alex immediately asked John to get in the truck with her saying, fuck this, I want to leave. Alex was clearly the only sensible one amongst us. After the initial shitting of our pants, we stood dumbfounded, staring at this creature for a moment or two, wondering what to do next. Jeff turned to me and asked if we should get a closer look. I mean, after all, there had to be some sort of reasonable explanation for what we were looking at. We swallowed our fear, held our guns close, and nervously began to approach this creature, its head still bobbing and staring straight at us from the dark country dirt road. Jeff and I began to slowly begin our approach. As we took our second or third step towards it, the creature stopped bobbing its head as it seemed to focus in on us, and then it stood straight up. When this creature stood up, it only reached a total of maybe four feet tall. It stood on two legs and grasped the small cypress tree it was peering behind. Then sudden movement of the creature caused Jeff and I to freeze our approach, and as we froze, the creature turned to its left stepped behind a skinny tree it was looking at us from, and vanished into thin air. The dirt trails leading to Jeff's cabin have retention ditches on both sides to help with flooding, because even the daily showers can flood the entire forest, and the day of our arrival, there had been several thunderstorms, and the ditches were full of water. We watched this creature vanish behind the tree without making a single sound. Jeff and I began to run towards the tree where the creature was just an just to find nothing there. No noises or splashing as if it had run through the ditch, no rustling in the trees, absolutely nothing. We even checked the ground where the creature had once stood and besides a compression where it had been, there were no footprints. Understandably, me and the entire crew began to freak out. We scoured the surroundings, clutching our guns tight, expecting whatever it was to make another appearance. Instead, only the eerie nothingness came back at us from the forest. No sounds of wind, animals, or trees, just pitch black all around. Jeff and I then ran back to the truck, gathered our bags and supplies, and our crew walked the quarter mile to the cabin, looking over our shoulders the entire time. We safely made it to the cabin, lit a fire, and reflected on what we saw, our guns still within an arm's reach. We had no occurrences that night, the sounds of the forest returned, and we slammed a few drinks to help with what was understandably an uneasy sleep. The following day went off without a hitch. We got up early, drank some coffee, and set out to the tree stands around the property in hopes of hunting a hog. After a long and unsuccessful day of hunting, we lit another fire, cooked dinner, and soaked up the last peaceful night away from civilization before returning to the city and our work lives the next day. After a few minutes of sitting around that warm fire and reflecting on the day and the mysterious events of the previous night, Jeff and I decided we wanted to hike back to that site where we saw the creature the night before. We might be able to figure it out. Again, Alex, being the least foolish among us and making damn sure John stayed with her in the cabin, said, fuck that, you guys. We're staying here where it's safe. Jeff and I grabbed our guns and set off back down the trail toward the dirt road. As we hiked, the forest was alive with sounds. 
coyotes in the distance, wind blowing, the occasional rubbing of a tree branch, sounds of cicadas and crickets filled the air as we walked to the swampy wetland forest. But as soon as we approached where the truck was parked, the forest went completely and suddenly silent. It was as if we suddenly walked through some soundproof barrier. The air went dead, cicadas stopped, and both Jeff and I began to feel rather uneasy. It felt like something was watching us. I'd like to preface this that neither Jeff nor I are at all afraid of the dark, cold nights in the forest. Jeff had grown up in these woods and at this property, and I was a former Boy Scout, avid camper, and also have a family cabin in a deep, wooded area in northern Georgia. We loved the peaceful nighttime walks in the woods, along with the escapism and relaxing experience of being in nature. But this night was different than any other night. As we began to walk down the dirt road towards the exact tree where we had seen this thing, the darkness, the silence, it somehow grew stronger. I don't know how else to explain it, but it's almost as if the darkness itself was alive and closing in on us. We could both hear our breath quickening, the nervous paranoia as our eyes darted from left to right, like the buildup before a big jump scare in a horror movie. The closer and closer we got to the tree, the more the darkness and silence became suffocating, every step feeling more and more difficult to complete. Nervously, Jeff said, I don't know what the fuck is wrong, man, but I am freaking out. To which I said, I know I feel like it's everywhere just watching us. We slowly but surely arrived at the tree. Guns clinched so tight to our hands as we began to carefully peer around the tree where the creature sat just 24 hours before. Nothing was there. Scanning the tree line, retention ditches, further down the dirt road, nothing. Just the utter primordial fear, darkness, and silence. Like the forest itself could swallow us whole in any moment. We darted around searching the area and Jeff eventually turned to me and wisely said, let's get the fuck out of here. And we did. We immediately turned tail and ran back to the cabin. We couldn't get out of there fast enough. As soon as we entered the trail from the dirt road again, it's like the sounds returned and the darkness released us from its chokehold. We returned to the light and warmth of the cabin once again and regained our sense of safety, but the rest of that night was still spent looking over our shoulders. Fast forward to current times. Anytime the paranormal is brought up, Jeff and I recount the tale of one of the most harrowing nights either of us can ever remember. What was that creature? What did it want? Where did it go after it went behind that skinny-ass tree? How did it just disappear? Was it still watching us the rest of the trip? Jeff and I began to call it an interdimensional being due to its immediate and impossible disappearance that night. Another friend said it sounded like a similar type of cryptid, the hide-behind. Another friend said it sounded like an alien visitation. I simply call it the thing in the woods. Stay peeping and always be creeping. Love you guys. Oh, thank you. And then I have one quick photo to show you. Um, he says, "Here are uh, here's an artist rendition similar to what we saw as well. Oh, and then, yeah, some photos of their cabin that I didn't include. Um, so this is what they feel like it looked like. The hide behind? If it was a hide behind yeah. or, you know, whatever it could be. And then Logan asked me because he was reviewing the photos before uh, we told the story today. And Logan, what what did you say it looked like? This is like a carbon copy. Dan, I don't know. Do you remember the movie The Wretched that we watched for This Looks Awesome? Uh, yes. It had that like witchy type character. Yeah, this yeah. Was, this, it's a very similar picture with the yeah. coming out from behind a tree with the shadows, with the eyes, with the droopy hair. Uh-huh. And that it was a he it was a still from the movie that they used. Oh, cool. And it's, it, I just, when I saw this, I was like, I asked Lindsay, I was like, is your story on The Wretched? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> this also, the story reminded me... I, I've totally forgot about the this talking about this entity before, but a couple of years ago, I told a story that was set in central Idaho, not far from Riggins. 
And I, I want to say it was maybe rafters going down the river too. And they kept seeing like something was following them. And that's where it's like, I t- went over the lore of the hide behind, which I had never heard about growing up. But yeah. I, think was, I think this is that only sounds the second, familiar. I think this is only the second time this has come up, but I totally forgot about. Uh, Me too. Because when I read the words, the hide behind, yeah. I was like, oh, that sounds familiar, but yep, what some is little, it? Some little shadowy thing that like uh, loggers would talk about seeing like popping out from behind yes. trees and looking at them and stuff. Yeah. I wish I'd find some more hide behind stories. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's many out there. Yeah, well, it sounds kind of hard to even locate. I mean, like it, it yeah. feels like an entity that like you can feel more than you can see. And if you see yeah. it, it's a very rare occurrence because if it uh-huh. was more common, I think we would have covered it more. It reminds me also of the dark watchers from like around Monterey, California mm-hmm. stories there. We had talked recently about in, uh, oh my gosh, that little Mount Rubido, Rubido, Rubido in a uh, Riverside, mm-hmm. that those things there, but a lot of like specifically like those kind of entities, these little dark things that will like hide behind stuff and watch you and, um, come from uh, Native American lore. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Mm-hmm. It was so, just so creepy. The, the uh, thing that the, creeped the me out- at the Roxbury detail killed me. Sarah. I know that was really funny. <laughs> uh, the thing that creeped me the most out was how little it was. Mm, well, they say like four feet tall. Yeah. With this big head, almost like an alien. Yeah. Could be like extra, I mean, like, you know, the, the classic, like, uh, I don't know, I think it's the gray- yeah, that's I mean, what he even says in the story, like the great. Oh, I forgot. That's right. The, yeah, the great. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, but then with like furry, hairy, that, that's like a weird. Mm-hmm. I just think about like when I am thinking of something scary, I don't think about it being little. I think about it being bigger than me, overpowering me. You know, yeah. the, when we see shadow people there or the hat man, like they're so yeah. big cryptids that are huge skinwalkers. Like mm-hmm. the fact that it's little makes me feel like maybe part of the reason we don't have a lot of stories about the hide behind, if that's in fact what it was, is because it's small and you could easily overlook it, like quite yeah. literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they are, the hide behind is pretty good at hiding. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Back but, to your uh, Night at the Roxbury. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I hope everyone listening is brave <laughs> enough to admit that you, at least a good portion of the listeners, did the move. Because I did. Oh, yeah, I did. yeah, I, like, yeah, started yeah, to do yeah, a little yeah. bit. I was like, wait, yeah. stop. <laughs> It's been so long. I can picture them doing it, but just that like exaggerated like side to side. Yeah. You have such good movement. (laughs) Such a good good dancer. Oh, well, epic, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) I've got, oof, I've got moves. You're better. You're better. You're better than me and Kyler, that's for sure. Oh my God. I like Kyler's, Kyler's still doing his weird hand move. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I like, Kyler likes to blame you for his bad dancing. I know. That's what I was just going to say. I like when he gets mad at me for like genetically somehow passing down inferior dance moves. Uh Uh-huh. Like as if he couldn't like take a dance class? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was say, do you know where I actually, I feel like I still to this day default to where I learned to dance? Huh. There was a movie Sinbad did in the late Sinbad. 90s called First Kid. And where he was basically- Was he Secret Service? Secret Service to the president's kid. And uh, Funny. the kid could never leave or whatever. So he's, you know, real angsty kid. But he there was a scene where he's teaching him to dance. And he, t- <laughs> he, like, I, he taught you as well? Yeah, I still remember. It's like, no, 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 just keep it simple, side to side. <laughs> and I still like, that's how I do it out. Ah, funny. Like, no, yeah. Do the Sinbad move. Funny. I I'll love watch that. that. So I have at least a move. Oh my God. So silly. Do you want to do some shout outs? Yeah. All right, go ahead. Have okay. at it. Okay. I'd like to uh, thank the following Annabelles for supporting our show. We appreciate you so much. Uh, thanks to Ashley Rivera, Kendra Law, Liz Jacques, Harley Brenner, Christian Reyes, Julie C. Horning, Taylor B., <laughs> Jucifer, mm-hmm. and Dominique. I like Jucifer. Oh, 
Sounds fun to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would also like to thank the following Annabelle's. I'm more grateful than Dana's that you support our yeah. show. Yeah, just, you know. Yeah, just, make it clear. I, I Definitely. I don't want anybody to be confused. Cynth- uh, Cynthia Montagiano, Shelby Harris, Caitlin, the Moto Mortician. Okay, I like that. Do you only mortician motorcycle people? Like, like <laughs> the Moto Mortician. Uh-huh. Or maybe you're, maybe you're a mobile mortician. Mm. Uh, Zach Baker, Mia B., or Maya B, Kevin Yen, Eric Williams, Connie Johnson, and Lacey PC. Lacey PC? Lacey PC. Oh, Lacey PC. You get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I have just a few spoopy shout outs this week to Bob from Anne Marie. Happy anniversary. To Kelly from Tim. Happy birthday. And to Harley from Bo. Happy birthday to my wifey from your frat boy. Funny. So many nicknames. Uh, like, I would love to see like a list of all the nicknames from the spoopy shoutouts that people have for one another. Oh my gosh. Just so many. Just so many random words that have become their little pet words. Uh-huh. We all have them. Yep, yep. Uh, that's our show. Thanks for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to mystoryatscaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else, info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thank you to Logan Keith, editing and publishing today's show. Thank you to Heather Rylander, organizing the My Story emails. Thanks to book editor Drew Atana, polishing, preparing the listener stories that Lindsay tells for book number five. Thank you to Sarah Finch for finding both the stories I told this week. We are on YouTube if you want to watch the show. And we're on Facebook and Instagram where we post pics that accompany episodes and more at Scared to Death Podcast. Same handle for TikTok. We have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers full of fellow horror lovers and enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. Hope you were scared to death. Bye. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but have no home here within scared to death. Magic Productions. Like the way our bed's set up, oh, yeah. there is no space under our bed. Yes, there is. You can't access it. There's not like a gap. Yes, there is. I oh, have there is? stuff under our bed right now. New fear unlocked. <laughs>